Last week, we saw in the second part of chapter 8 how the church is to hold fast to the new covenant, knowing that it alone provides reconciliation. So interesting coming off of the Lord's table, the very picture of the celebration of the new covenant. We get to spend time in the book of Hebrews. And as you know, the preacher, and that's what he is, he's a preacher preaching to a church, a small church of ethnic Jews who've become believers, who've lost their friends and family, and now are undergoing a measure of persecution, though no one has died yet. But they have endured the seizure of their property, the malignment uh, of their uh, reputation, and they're tempted to go back. Their, their old friends and family beckon them. The familiarity of the synagogue uh, is kind of crying out to them. The liturgy, the songs. They've lost interest in studying the Word of God. They've lost interest in being bold. Why? Because you lose interest in that which costs you. And they're starting to feel the pressure. They're starting to feel the pain. Last week, we saw how the old covenant that they're tempted to go back to is incomplete. It will not accomplish that for which it was designed. It will not get them across the finish line. It will not grant them salvation. But the new, on the other hand, is complete, and the new makes the old, you remember what the word was? Obsolete. That's right. And so it is amid this pressure of persecution that is producing this lack of interest that the preacher continues to hammer the importance and the effectiveness of the new covenant. It's almost like he wants to help them realize how great it is. They've, they've forgotten. Like the Ephesian church, they, they're starting to, to lose their first love. Their affections are growing cold. They're starting to drift. And as he has told them in chapter 6, drifting has a what? destination. Boy, I tell you what, if, if, if you have that with regards to this book, you have more than they taught you in seminary. Drifting has a destination. We're in no way saying that, that saving faith doesn't save. It, it certainly does. And we're saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. And you cannot lose your salvation. That said, genuine faith perseveres to the end. Genuine faith doesn't just save us for a moment in time. We talk about saving faith in past tense. I am saved. When did you get saved? We're talking about it as a done deal. And yet we know that Satan hasn't been defeated. Christ has not returned. His kingdom is not completely fulfilled. And we still have these fleshly bodies. But it's a done deal. But it's not a done deal because we bring anything to the table. It's a done deal because the Holy Spirit perseveres through us with the faith that he has given us. And so this week, this preacher is going to further develop this comparison between the old and the new covenant. And it's going to seem a little bit redundant at first, but upon closer look, we're going to see that what he explains today is the very thrust of why we as Christians should hold fast to the new covenant. That we should really not only understand it, but embrace it, cultivate our affections for it, because it is the very reason by which we are reconciled. Now, let me explain one more thing here as we get going. These Jewish believers, 
they had an advantage over us because they understood the old covenant well. They had experienced it. They, they, they saw its shortcomings. They saw the repetitive nature. They saw the sacrifices. Uh, and as much as they loved it, they saw that it ultimately did not save. They were looking forward to a Messiah. We have a tendency growing up, most of us in Protestant churches, that we understand that we are not saved by works. So much so that we forget that it is someone else's work that made it possible. Does that make sense? We, we, we've almost become sanitized to the free gift of salvation. So much so that it's cheapened. We take it for granted. Um, we have a tendency to just pound the, the faith alone, which is absolutely true, so much that we forget that to follow Christ's costs. And so it's, it's like the preacher wants to remind us how the old did not accomplish salvation so that we can remember how, remember how hopeless we were before and appreciate what we have now. Because remember, the whole point of this is, is to stay the course, to not quit. And right now we're all kind of like, yeah, rah, rah, we're not going to quit. We're going to stand for the truth. I mean, didn't we just do a conference, right? Wokeness on the gospel. We're suffering for Jesus. Eh, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Not until the New York Times actually writes an article. Then, then we're suffering for Jesus. But it's coming and it's going to get tough. And some of us are going to grow weak and tired and discouraged. And uh, we, as part of the family of Christ, are going to have to draw near. We're going to have to parakaleo, speak alongside someone, words of encouragement. We're going to have to, to hold them up. We're going to have to strengthen their faith with the word of God. And the preacher of Hebrews says it starts by understanding what was accomplished in the new covenant. Look at it with me, starting in verse 1. This kind of sets the stage for us. If, you, if you've ever wondered whether the Bible is, is systematic in how the Holy Spirit wrote it, or if it's just a big book of poetry, this is where expositional preaching really shines. This is not only inspired and authored by the Holy Spirit, but it is very well thought out. Look at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had circle regulations of divine worship and, you might say, regulations for the earthly sanctuary. Regulations for divine worship and regulations for earthly sanctuary. He's going to take these two items here. He's going to say, let's look at the earthly sanctuary and what it looked like to worship or draw near to God in the old covenant. And then let's compare it to the new covenant. And let's see the differences. Let's see if one is ineffective and the other one is effective. Let's look at the earthly tabernacle and compare it to the heavenly tabernacle. Let's look at the earthly regulations for worship being reconciled to God. And then let's look at what the new covenant brings about. I'm going to press us in a little bit further this way to keep it simple. We might think of it this way. The sanctuaries, both the, the earthly and the heavenly, are how we approach God. You might write down the word entrance. 
entrance. Think of entrance into the throne room. The regulations for worship, that's how people are made right before God, reconciled to God. Write down the word conscience. Entrance and conscience. The preacher is saying, let's look at entrance and conscience under the old covenant and see how that's working for you. And then let's look at entrance and conscience under the new covenant and see the difference. Entrance, well, that's an issue of access to our holy God. That's being able to approach our holy God. Conscience, on the other hand, that's the ability to stand before him. And it is ultimately conscience that determines, watch this, if we will live. And no one talks about that so much in modern day Christendom. The Old Testament prophets understood it. Isaiah understood it. David understood it. How can one stand before a holy God and not die? Because if he is truly holy and we are not, what must immediately happen? Judgment, right? And we deserve to die. This is why it is the good news of salvation, okay? So it is conscience that is, is the, very, the, the, the very center of what this is about. How can we stand before a holy God and live, and live in relationship. Look at verse 9 with me. He's going to get to the middle of the first part, the Old Covenant, and it says, which is a symbol for the present time, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. We might say it this way. The Old Covenant cannot cleanse the conscience. It cannot change you so that you can be with God. Now look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, what? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The new covenant accomplishes the cleansing of the conscience. Turn one page over. Let me show you how he's going to hit it again in chapter 10, verse 22. Remember, they're drifting. Chapter 10, verse 22. Let us not drift, but draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look, as a believer, let's just be real honest. You remember well the estate of your conscience prior to coming to Christ, okay? I don't care how much you were enjoying sin. I don't care how much you read your Bible or didn't. Your conscience plagued you. And you may have lied to the rest of the world, but you knew and God knew there were things you did that there's no amount of good works that could make up for them. There are things you did in your own depravity that were such an affront to God, you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt you deserved death and your conscience nagged you. And it was like stabbing you. Oh, you may drink it, 
drink enough until you were numb. You may, you may keep yourself busy in a career until you didn't think about it. You may try to start on a path that made you feel good about yourself. For sure, you had multiple conversations with people that explained to them all the good things you were doing and you're looking for affirmation in their eyes thinking that would be enough, but the pain never went away. You know if you were an unbeliever, your conscience plagued you. And if I could speak to the unbelievers among us today, you're in that estate now. You may fake it to the rest of us, but your conscience is nagging you because you know the depravity of your own self. You know that God did not turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to your dirty deeds. But as a Christian, you know that they were justly paid by someone else. And so when you came to Christ, it was as if shackles fell from your wrists. For Paul, who was a murderer, to have a clean conscience, not because God didn't think about it, but because God did think about it and Christ paid for it. You know that your sins are forgiven. I saw Patsy's shirt this morning, forgiven. It says it all, doesn't it? Forgiven. And when someone says, what does that mean? She turns around and it says Romans 8, 1. There's there, therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When people say, I know what you did. You say, yeah, I do too. But I'm forgiven. My conscience is cleansed. And so as we approach this text today, I want to go ahead and just kind of give us the answers. There's only two responses. There's only two good responses to this. If you're an unbeliever, it's repenting and receiving a clear conscience based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers, it is realizing afresh this great gift of a cleansed conscience in the new covenant and appreciating it and adoring our great God for it. Amen. Two points will guide our time. Old covenant entrance and conscience. Old covenant entrance and conscience. And our second point, new covenant entrance and conscience. Let's look at the first one. Now, you, you know I love history. And so anytime I get a chance, I got to dive back into it. I know, he says, I think it's in verse 8, he goes, we don't have time to talk about these things now, all these pictures of the Old Testament worship and, and, and articles of furniture in the temple. But, but remember, that original audience knew all about it. We don't. So that gives me license to talk about it a little bit, okay? <laughs> if you'll allow me, I would like to place us in the Sinai Desert somewhere around 1414 B.C. You along with your fellow Israelites, were freed from your full-time slavery position as masons and bricklayers some 30 years ago. You left that sprawling metropolis of Thebes and have now been in the Sinai Desert. You're led by a cloud during the day, pillar of fire at night representing Yahweh, our covenant God. You're fed by manna, water from a rock, provision, Occasional meat. There are 12 tribes. And in the very center of the camp is a desert sanctuary, the tabernacle. So I want you to pretend for a moment this morning so that we can understand these things that you are from the tribe of Levi and you're a priest. Ladies, do your best to imagine this, okay? 
As you approach the center of the camp, you realize that it is your week. You say, what do I mean by your week? Well, as Aaron's great, great grandson, you get to serve in the tabernacle for one week. Oh, you've been a priest a long time, but it is a rare, rare chance that you get to do this. You've heard about what it looks like inside. You, you've read the book of Leviticus. You've had people explain it to you, but you've never actually been able to go into that first room. And so as you prepare yourself, you're walking towards it, and the white linen walls gleam against the desert sand. It's a structure that is 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, and it exudes serenity. You walk into the front courtyard area, and there's a large seven and a half foot square bronze altar that has horns on all four corners. Past that, there is another large bronze laver for ceremonial washing by the priests. And as you walk past them, you enter into what is called the tent of meeting. The first room is called the holy place. And you see in living color what you've only imagined. Tapestries of red, blue, and purple encapsulate, line the walls. Immediately, it's 20 degrees cooler inside as it is layer upon layer of animal skin. You look over and you recognize the menorah, a large hammered golden lampstand with cups like almond blossoms. It is always lit, Exodus 25 tells us. And then you turn north and you see the table of showbread with 12 unleavened loaves on it, each one representing a tribe of Israel. Your job this week would be to watch over that, to keep the candles lit, to keep the incense burning, and to refresh those loaves once a week. This would be your home. But then there's another room, a forbidden one, one with a thick veil held up by golden columns. And yet there is no entrance for you. It makes no difference how high you are on the Ladder. It makes no difference how closely you are related to Aaron. No Israelite security clearance will get you in. For behind that veil is what's called the holy, holy place. The most holy place. And no one goes in there save one person. Who is it? The high priest. And only once a year. You know what is back there. The Ark of the Covenant. A wood chest covered in gold, topped by a lid called the mercy seat with cherubim. We've seen raiders, right? <laughs> and it is during this time that the high priest gets close. Though we've seen raiders, we may not understand what all this is about. It is called the Ark or the chest of the covenant. The cherubim represent a specific class of angels, angels that guarded the holiness of God. There used to be one, now there are four. Do you remember what the one's name was? It was Lucifer. 
Their charge, again, is to guard the holiness of God. And inside, if you were to lift off the mercy seat and look into the chest, you see the stone tablets of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You see a golden jar that has uh, an omer of manna in it, in which God sustained the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness. And you have Aaron's rod that budded when he was made high priest. This chest... This ark contains the covenant. It would not be unusual to those who lived in the ancient Near East for to walk into any throne room of a conquering king, you would see his feet sitting on top of a similar chest, though one not nearly as ornate. And in it would contain another covenant. It was called a Caesarean vassal covenant. Anytime a king would conquer peoples, he would make an agreement by which they would live. And he would sit on his throne and in uh, authority, he would put his feet on this covenant. In a sense, God had freed his people. He had conquered them. He had made them his own. And this was the covenant by which they would live. And yet you can't get in there. You look around, the pictures of the Old Covenant are, are unmistakable. The sights, the smells, the imagery was amazing. We as New Covenant Christians look back and see it clearly. The menorah, the lampstand, well clearly it was picturing that Christ would be the light of the world. The bread, he's the bread of life. The shedding of blood shed by the perfect Passover lamb. And yet these were just shadows. They were just pictures, pictures that had yet to be fulfilled. Chapter 8, verse 5 says, <clears throat> who serve as a copy or shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. These were pictures and shadows and copies of the original. And yet, you, as a priest who get your week in the holy place, can't go beyond. There was no entrance. And the road to God, the road to approach the entrance to God in the Old Covenant had a dead end, and it was the veil. You were in a waiting room. Chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place, the entrance into the throne room of God has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. In simple terms, you cannot get into God's presence. You're stuck in the waiting room. And yet let's spend a minute and talk about that once a year picture. That once a year picture where the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You can review it this week from Le Leviticus chapter 16. The priest, after cleansing himself for a week, would don a white linen tunic, white robes, a white turban, and take a ceremonial bath. He then takes a young bull and two young goats, two male goats, in the morning, he sacrifices the bull for the sins of himself and his family. 
He then takes the two goats to the door of the tent of meeting and draws lots. One loses and will be sacrificed. The other, and we'll talk about that in a moment. He slaughters the bull, takes the blood along with, watch this, a fire pan of coals and two handfuls of incense. And he enters into the holy holy place, the most holy place. Before he goes in, a fellow priest ties a rope to his ankle so that should he die in the presence of God, they'll be able to drag him out without dying themselves. The bells that are sewn to the hem of his garment keep the other priests aware that he is still alive as he moves around. And so he goes in. He takes the incense, he throws it on the fire pan, and a cloud fills the most holy place, a commandment by God in order that he might live and not die. He then takes the blood of the bull and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat seven times. And then he sprinkles it in front of the mercy seat. From there, he exits the veil, slaughters the goat. This will atone for the sins of the people. He puts the blood of the bull and the goat on the four horns, on the four corners of the altar, sprinkling it on seven times. In each case, he is atoning. Literally, he is covering the sins of Israel. The high priest then comes out of the most holy place after going in again and sprinkling the blood of the goat on there, comes out again and looks at the second goat and he must be wondering what's up for me. And he takes him and he metaphorically, symbolically places the sins of the nation of Israel on his head. And the congregation walks him out into the desert. And they're chanting, bear our sins and be gone. And he is released to go into the Sinai desert, never to return again. And it was a picture of how God forgets our sins. And he is called the scapegoat. It's a great day for Israel. There's celebration. And yet it doesn't last. And they have to do the same thing next year. And even the sins that are offered by the high priest, look at verse 7. He offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. They can't even atone for the sins of what was called high-handed sins. How many of us have committed high-handed sins even last week? With our attitude, our words, our fighting, our, our selfishness. You see, the old covenant would not provide entrance to God. Even our priest we've talked about here. Oh, he's closer than two million other people, but he's not close enough because he'll never get past that veil. And the old covenant would not cleanse one's conscience. Look at verse 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. So he got his weak, but he didn't get close. He got his weak, but his conscience is not clear. 
Now fast forward 1400 years, look at the new covenant regulations for divine worship and earthly sanctuary. You know, I love it in verse 11 when it starts out with but, but when Christ appeared, you know, you could almost just preach a whole sermon on that right there. But when everything changed, as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Jesus didn't just pierce the veil. When the veil was torn, when he said, it is finished, and the, the veil in the temple was torn, he didn't enter into the holy place, the most holy place. You know what? He went right through all the way to the greater tabernacle in heaven, to God's throne room. He didn't go through the model. He didn't go through the picture. He went to the original. This is amazing here. He ripped the veil as the forerunner, entered the throne room of God and became our eternal high priest. He didn't have to offer a bull for his own sin. He had none. And he didn't slaughter a goat for our sin. He shed his own. Verse 12, not through the blood of bulls, of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. Watch this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When our Lord paid our price on the cross and He conquered sin and death and He entered into the throne room, He essentially took His church with Him. You see, on the cross, He didn't make it possible for you to come to Christ. He purchased a bride and now we have entrance into the throne room. How do we have entrance? How many of us prayed this week? I love what George Mueller said, you know, whose whole ministry was dependent upon prayer. He says, I have yet to be able to not, uh, I've never yet been able to get an audience with the king. I've always been able to, always. I can pray at any time, day or night. The blood of bulls and goats will not save. Neither can our conscience be cleansed by our own righteousness. That word dead works there. It explains that, that even our best attempts are just futile. There is filthy rags. And yet we know this. We know this because we remember how our conscience plagued us prior to coming to Christ. I've got a friend of mine. He's not a believer, but boy, he tries to convince me he is. I can't get him to church. Witness to him all the time. And every time I start, he's like, no, 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 let me, let me tell you what I did for a little old lady this week. And let me tell you how I did this favor for so-and-so. And that's the kind of guy I am. And I just want to say, bro, you're protesting too much. Because I was like you. And I know you're not a great guy. And I know before a holy God, you stand judged. But you could tell. He likes to be around me because somehow he thinks I'm going to soothe his conscience. And it's stabbing him daily. 
His good works don't get him to first base. You know, Martin Luther understood this. He became an Augustinian monk and he just beat himself up trying to do good works, dead good works to earn this sort of righteousness. And it was Romans 1.17 that just plagued him. You know the verse, for it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And he had come to hate God for this because he saw this righteousness as God's judging righteousness. And he had been raised reading Latin, Latin Vulgate. And in the Latin, justification is justificare. It's a legal courtroom term. It means to, to make righteous. And he had been taught that in order to gain God's favor, he had to make himself righteous through sacraments, through good works, through obedience to the church. So he worked hard. As I mentioned last week, he'd go to confession for six hours a day. He pushed himself and pushed himself to clear his nagging conscience. Listen to him. He says, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. He said, if I'd kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. But it never cleansed his conscience. But God in his providence, through all his monkery, taught him Greek. And in Greek, it doesn't say to make righteous. It says to declare righteous. And as he's reading this, he starts to understand that the righteousness is not something that he is able to gin up or make it in himself, but it is an external righteousness. He called it an alien righteousness. It was a righteousness that God gives from our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.9, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen to Luther's words when this clicked. Quote, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became an inexpressible sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate or an entrance to heaven. It is the new covenant that gets us in to the throne room of God by the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the new covenant that gives us a cleansed conscience where we can be in relationship, reconciled to God, not by our own righteousness, not by our own dead works, 
but through an external righteousness, through Jesus Christ. The preacher here is saying, why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back and embrace something that does not work, that will not get you near God, that will not cleanse your, cleanse your conscience? Why have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that you could not get through the veil? That metaphorically, you're banging on the veil and you could not get through. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, what is the pilgrim carrying? The burden. Have you forgotten the burden? The old covenant would not lift the burden. It is only the new that causes it to go away. This is what he wants us to feel. And it's hard for us as 21st century Christians to feel it because we don't realize how insufficient and ineffective the old covenant was. Certainly it served a purpose to point us to Christ. But he wants us to feel that burden that Pilgrim felt. He wants us to realize that we were in the waiting room and we could not get into the throne room of God. He wants us to remember, and this is what we can do, remember the nagging conscience. For it is only the new covenant that can cleanse it. Amen? Look, if you're here today and you do not have a clear conscience, it's because you've never bowed the knee to Christ. And I really want to encourage you to do business with the estate of your soul. To realize there is nothing that will gain you access to our Lord. There is nothing that will clear the conscience other than the new covenant. Other than repenting of your sin and placing your faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers, we need to realize it afresh Jonathan Edwards was asked, how do you know someone is genuinely a believer? And he said, where do their heart's affections lie? If it's not in the new covenant, then we need to kindle afresh that work that God did in our heart.